Good morning again, everyone. Welcome to Cross of Life. My name is Caleb. If I haven't met you, I'm the pastor here at our congregation. And we are starting a brand new sermon series this week called I Undeserved This with a tagline, sometimes nothing is the hardest thing to do. As we start this series, as you know, if you've been going to Cross of Life for a while, I like to take a few minutes to explain the premise of the series so you can sort of get a category for what we're talking about over the next couple of weeks. So I'd like to start with that. Last week, as you know, we were not able to worship in here because our permit was canceled based on a weather advisory that turned out to be actually much less bad than what we just experienced this weekend. Uh, so we got to do church online. We got to do Facebook Live. Maybe many of you were, were there watching along with uh, us as we worshiped. Uh, but something really interesting happened at the end of that worship service. When I clicked end live video, everyone was gone. There was no hands to shake, no people to talk to, no coffee to drink, no cleanup to be done here. It, that was it. We were done for the day, and I'm never done at 11.30 on a Sunday morning. So I thought to myself, well, what am I going to do with this time that I have now? And so I thought, well, maybe I'll go to another church just to see what other churches are doing, see if maybe we can learn something from them that's working well. And so my family packed up, we went to another church, went, sat through a worship service, and we learned some things. We also saw some things that actually were doing really, really well, um, that maybe even they were struggling with a little bit. But there's one thing that stuck with me from that experience of, of going to that other church. I sat through the 40-minute sermon by the preacher that day, and he gave an awesome message about mental health, about what the Bible says about the human person, how you can't reduce a person down to just chemicals or just emotions or just spirituality, that, that the human person is so complex and God made it so beautifully that you have to have a multifaceted approach to having solid mental health, which is totally biblical, and he preached it really well. I learned a lot. But something was missing. Jesus. Jesus was mentioned in many places, Jesus was assumed. But at the end of the sermon, while I heard something that was straight from the Bible and great for my life, I didn't really hear Jesus. I want you to understand something. I'm not picking on this preacher because I went to his church for one Sunday. I'm sure the other 51 weeks of the year, he preaches more Jesus than he did that Sunday. I don't know, and frankly, that's not the point of me telling you this story. The reason I want to tell you that story is that what nagged me for the rest of the day is how many times have I done that to you? How many times have I stood up here and preached to you something straight from the scriptures, accurately understood, helpful for your life, but I missed Jesus? I maybe talked about him, I maybe mentioned him, I maybe assumed him in some places, but at the end of the sermon, you didn't have the overwhelming sense of what an amazing God we have, a God who saves. I didn't go back and do the statistics. I didn't listen through all my sermons, but I imagine that some of those sermons that I've preached over this past year and a half have been that way. And I'm sorry for that. You can go a lot of places to get self-help, a lot of places to get direction for your life, but here is the only place where you can get Jesus. But I don't think I'm the only one who struggles with this. Especially for those of us who have been Christians for a longer time of our life, it can be easy as we hear the gospel again and again to start thinking, okay, well, let's move on. Let's, let's learn something else. 
just to give you a picture of how this might happen, um, as part of my job, I, I study the scriptures a lot, and one of the ways I do that is I listen to other guys preach sermons and see if I can pick up things here or there from them. This uh, week, I did the math, actually, I consumed 14 sermons, which means 14 times I had a preacher tell me about God's grace for me, which after 14 times, I'm pretty filled up with the gospel, and, and I'm pretty eager to move on to something else. Maybe you're like that, too. You've heard the gospel so many times that you say, okay, that's good, but, but what about right now? What about this issue? What does the Bible have to say about that? And while it's not wrong, it's not what Jesus intended. He had the scriptures written down, his words recorded, so that we would understand at the end of the day, what matters more than anything else is Jesus. And that's what this sermon series hopes to accomplish to show you Jesus in a million different ways. Today we're going to get around the big idea that is your first fill-in-the-blank for today. You can't be saved if you're not in trouble. And we're going to learn that from the text of the Good Samaritan, maybe the most famous parable that Jesus ever told. It comes to us from Luke chapter 10. I will read the text and then we'll talk about it. On one occasion, an expert in the law stood up to test Jesus. Teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? What is written in the law, he replied. How do you read it? He answered, love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and love your neighbor as yourself. You have answered correctly, Jesus replied. Do this and you will live. But he wanted to justify himself. So he asked Jesus, and who is my neighbor? In reply, Jesus said, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho when he was attacked by robbers. They stripped him of his clothes, beat him, and went away, leaving him half dead. A priest happened to be going down that same road, and when he saw the man, he passed by on the other side. So to a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he traveled, came to where the man was, and when he saw him, he took pity on him. He went to him and bandaged his wounds, pouring on oil and wine, and he put the man on his own donkey, took him to an inn, and took care of him. The next day, he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper. Look after him, he said, and when I return, I will reimburse you for any extra expense you might have. Which of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of robbers? The expert in the law replied, the one who had mercy on him. Jesus told him, go and do likewise. This is the gospel of the Lord. Now, most often when we read this parable, we have a, a visceral reaction to it. We love this picture of selfless love from the Samaritan to this man who has been beaten up on the side of the road. Even to the level to which we sort of start to identify with this Samaritan. We start to think that's a really good person. That's the kind of person I want to be. Maybe you even know that there are organizations that have taken their name from this story. Maybe most famously, Samaritan's Purse, a group who does work for people who are in need. And while that's a fine thing to do, and while the Bible does command us to take care of the poor and the needy around us, that's not what this parable is about. Now, to understand that, we have to back up a little bit and talk about parables in general. What are parables? 
Uh, the word parable it comes from the, idea, uh, the Greek concept of two things that are mirror images. Maybe you remember in math class a parabola. If you don't, that's okay. Most people don't. But a parable was a story that illustrated a different point. Now, Jesus told many parables in his ministry, and, and people have tried to figure out over the years why he did. What was his reasoning for all these stories that he told? Uh, some people would say it's because stories are particularly engaging, right? We are kind of storytelling people, and, and so as we hear stories, we identify with them better. Some people say it was to make the abstract concrete, right? Christianity is full of a lot of teachings that are somewhat abstract, and Jesus was trying to make them real for us. But actually, both those reasons are wrong. In fact, Jesus told us exactly why he told parables, because his disciples asked him. Uh, In Matthew 13, the disciples asked this question. Why do you speak to the people in parables? Jesus replies, because the knowledge of the secrets of the kingdom of heaven have been given to you, but not to them. Whoever has will be given more, and they will have an abundance. Whoever does not have, even what they have will be taken from them. This is why I speak to them in parables. Though seeing, they do not see. Though hearing, they do not hear or understand. So why does Jesus talk in parables? To hide the gospel. You might think to yourself, that seems kind of weird. Isn't, isn't Jesus' whole like, point to preach the gospel so lots of people can know? Well, yes, sort of. See, what Jesus came to restore was faith. I think back to the beginning when Adam and Eve were in a perfect relationship with God. They had perfect faith. They trusted God for everything they needed. They saw God as the absolute source of happiness and peace and security, and they doubted not one bit. It was a perfect relationship. It was everything right, but then when sin came into the world, it broke that faith. All of a sudden, Adam was hiding himself behind fig leaves. All of a sudden, Eve was blaming the serpent and Adam blaming Eve. And perfect faith was destroyed. And so Jesus came to fix faith. And if you think about what faith is, it makes sense. Faith is salvation. Faith is the status of forgiven, redeemed, and destined for heaven. So much so that you could even say, if you have faith right now, you are already in eternity. There's going to be a bump in the road when your body breathes your last here, but you're just going to keep on going. You're immortal right now if you have faith. That's what Jesus came to restore. But what he wanted to make sure we understood is that that faith is from God by grace. You maybe know that famous verse, it is by grace you have been saved through faith, and this not from yourselves. It is the gift of God. Well, grace and faith together are God's gift that he gives to us. We don't ask him into our heart. We don't decide to follow him. He does it to us. And that's why he speaks in parables. So that he can very clearly delineate between those who have faith and those who do not. Those who have faith will read or hear these parables one way. And those who don't have faith will hear or read them a different way. The Apostle Paul made this very obvious to us in 1 Corinthians uh, when he wrote that 
the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. In other words, you can hear the exact same message, but if you do not have faith, you will think it is dumb. It is foolish. It doesn't make sense. But if you have faith, you will hear that same message, and it will be the power of God, and it will overwhelm you and bring you to your knees. And so our task as we go through Jesus' parables is to make sure that we are reading them through eyes of faith. And unfortunately, I don't think many do. Very often this parable is used as sort of a a club by pastors to make their parishioners behave better, be kinder to each other, or to uh, nicer to people in their community. And like I said, these are commands that the Bible gives us, but not from this text. And I think that's very easy to see once you focus on the very beginning of the story. The story opens with this expert in the law, a man who would be similar to my position, I suppose, someone who studies the Bible regularly. He comes to Jesus and he asks this question, Lord, what must, or teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Now key in on that question right away, because that question is a vertical question. It's a question about my relationship with God. It's not a question about my relationship with other people, right? Therefore, Jesus' answer is going to be to the question, how do I get right with God? And that actually dismantles the idea that this parable could be in any way teaching us about how to treat each other. Because that's not what the teacher asked. If you're taking notes with us, that's the first fill in the blank that we have for us today. A vertical question gets a vertical answer. So he asks this question, what must I do to inherit eternal life, Jesus? And Jesus answers his question with a question. Well, what do you read in the law? When he says the law, he means the Old Testament, specifically the first five books of the Old Testament where the Levitical code was recorded for us. And the man gives a good answer. He says, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. This was the summation of the whole law. It was really taking the Ten Commandments and breaking them into two categories. Maybe you've seen this done before. We have Ten Commandments from God, right? The first three are all about our relationship with God. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. But the second half of those commandments are all about our relationship to our neighbor, to the people around us, right? And so, therefore, you can um, summarize the Ten Commandments in those two commands. Love God and love your neighbor. Absolutely perfectly, all the time, that's God's command. Now, let's meditate on that for a second. What would it look like to love God with all your heart and all your soul and all your mind and all your strength? I don't know because I don't know that it's possible. As sinful people, to love God all the time, it's not even on our radar. Our hearts are so broken that we can't even hope to love God half of what he deserves. And yet God's command is, love me all the time, everywhere, in every way. And if that's not intimidating enough, the second half maybe is just as intimidating, right? Love your neighbor as yourself. 
Which Jesus doesn't just want us to stop at, you know, don't murder your neighbor, don't steal your neighbor's stuff, don't have sex with somebody who's not your spouse. No, he goes actually a step further. For example, in Matthew 5, when he's talking about the fifth commandment, he says, you have heard that it was said to the people long ago, you shall not murder, and anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. But I tell you that anyone who is angry with a brother or sister will be subject to judgment. Love your neighbor as yourself? It's also impossible. I mean, just think for a second of all the things that you do for yourself. You clothe yourself and wash yourself and feed yourself and buy yourself a beer or a spa treatment or spend your hard-earned cash on something nice for the weekend. You do all sorts of stuff for yourself. What would a life looked com- look like if it was completely dedicated to loving every other person around you that way? You're probably thinking, that's crazy. And that's the point. See, what Jesus is trying to get this expert in the law to understand is that inheriting eternal life is impossible for him by his works. He can't hope to love God enough. He can't hope to love his neighbor enough. But the expert in the law just doesn't get it. And so he asks this question, well, then who is my neighbor? Luke tells us that he asks this question to justify himself. And you can kind of tell by the way he asks it, right? The expert doesn't ask the question how, he asks the question who. I suppose it could be kind of reasonable that the expert could have said, okay, Jesus, I get it, love God, love your neighbor. Do you have some, like, details on how I'm supposed to pull that off? Because I think I'm doing okay, but I, I know I have to do better. But he doesn't ask that, he asks who which is a justifying question. What I mean by that is he's looking for a way to make the way that he already behaves good enough. He's trying not to rise up to God's level, but to lower God's level down to him. Now, the sad truth is that we're all trying to do this. If you're taking notes with us, that's the next fill in the blank. We are all trying to justify ourselves. We're maybe not saying who is my neighbor, but in a thousand different ways, all the time, we are trying to lower God's law down to the way that we live already. You see this in culture, right? People reinterpret the Bible to allow them to live a certain lifestyle that they may want to live. They lower the expectations of how they're supposed to treat one another or how much they're supposed to be invested in God so that they can feel okay about the way that they're living. Actually, a really good test for this, if you don't believe me that you're justifying yourself all the time, is when someone comes against you with some sort of accusation, you didn't do this, or you should have done this, is your first reaction to start thinking about how you're probably actually right? That's justifying yourself. I mean, for a Christian, that should be absolutely the opposite way that we would go, right? Like, a Christian should believe, I am sinful by nature, I am broken from the bottom, therefore, I should probably just assume that I'm sinning all the time. So if someone comes against me and says, you sinned, I should probably say, most likely. But how do most of us react? We all kind of react the same way, right? We say, well, you know, circumstances, my upbringing, I was having a bad day. I'm not always like that. I'm just a straight shooter whatever we want to say so that God's law or the expectations on us can be lowered down to our level and God is having none of it. So Jesus tells this story. 
The story of a man walking down a road from Jerusalem to Jericho, a road that was a real road that those people who heard the story would have known. Um, It was a winding road through the mountains, which was notorious for robbers and muggings because it was hidden from view from the cities. Jericho was a place that many of the priests lived, and so when they would do their work in in Jerusalem, they would walk back up this road to Jericho. On the road, the man is walking, and he is mugged by some robbers, left for dead. But a ray of hope, right? A priest, a man who would have been talking about God's law of love that day at the temple, is walking past, but the priest walks by on the other side. So to a Levite, who would have known that same law of love, walks by on the other side. But then a Samaritan, as he traveled, walks past up to the man and doesn't walk by, but actually gets down on his hands and knees and and binds the man's wounds, picks him up, puts him on his own donkey, takes him to an inn and takes care of him, not just physically, but also financially for the future to come. Now, to understand the power of this story that Jesus tells us, I think you do need to understand something about racism. We have a concept of racism in our country for sure. Uh, Take your concept of racism and pretty much maximize it. That's what was happening with Samaritans in this culture. The Samaritans were somewhat of a half-breed. They were partially Jewish and partially Gentile. And so the Jews would look at them and say, well, you're not pure-blood Jewish, so we don't like you. And the Gentiles would look at them and say, you're kind of Jewish, so we don't like you. They were basically everybody's enemy. Just because of their culture, their ethnicity, basically who they were born to, they were hated by everyone. They had every reason to ignore the needs of Jew and Gentile alike. And so run your story back through that lens for a moment. This man who has no reason to help this guy on the side of the road not only stops, but takes care of everything for him. It's a powerful story. In fact, the the racism in this story is so powerful that when Jesus finishes the story and addresses the expert in the law again, he asks in this question, which of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of robbers? And the expert in the law can't even bring himself to name the man. He won't even call him a Samaritan. He just says, the one who had mercy on him. So the expert in the law very quickly understood that this story was about him and how he was supposed to love his neighbor but he knew he wasn't. He knew he was never going to love a Samaritan that way, and he knew that he would probably never even love many of his Jewish brethren that way. And so hopefully, and we don't know, but hopefully he was completely crushed by this story. When Jesus says, go and do likewise, he's not giving a command, an inspiration to go out and be a better person. He's saying, tongue-in-cheek, good luck. You think you can fulfill the law? Fat chance, man. If you're taking notes with us, the next fill in the blank is that this story is not inspiration. It's condemnation. It's for every one of us to understand how close, or maybe more realistically, how far away we are from God's standard of perfection. That we are in trouble. And if you think this story is about you and how to be a better person, Jesus has the same tongue-in-cheek response. Okay, go and do likewise. 
See, the point of this story is that we have nothing to offer God, but, but hidden in the story is the beautiful message that God has something to offer you. Did you catch it? A man beaten up. Religious people pass him by. But then a man from two different cultures, two different ethnicities, steps in and takes care of everything for him. Sound familiar? When we think of this story often, we want to identify with the good Samaritan, but actually Jesus wants us to identify with the man on the side of the road. That we are the ones who have been beaten up by our own sin and by other people's sin, beaten up by the law that says, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself, and we've completely failed it. We have no hope but to lie there waiting to die until a man from two different well, natures, God and man, stepped into our life and saved us from that damnation. See, in this story, Jesus hides himself. And unless you're looking at the story through the eyes of faith, you're not going to see that. You're going to see it as inspiration to be a better person, but this story is fundamentally about Jesus. So, three things that Jesus does. You can see them all in the story. If you're taking notes with us, they're the next three fill-in-the-blanks. First, Jesus intervenes. Like the man who came, or sorry, like the Samaritan who saw the man on the side of the road and decided not to pass by, but to step into that man's life, Jesus steps into your life. He gives you what you need to be healed. The forgiveness of sins, life eternal, the promise of salvation, faith, which is salvation right now. He gives it all to you. He heals all your wounds. But he doesn't stop there. Second, he entrusts. Just like the Samaritan took that man, put him on his own donkey, and carried him to the inn where the innkeeper could take care of him long term, Jesus doesn't just save you, he saves you and then brings you into a community of believers who can do the same thing. Who can heal you, who can continually give you spiritual care long term. That's why we meet together on Sunday, that's why we have life groups, it's our chance to provide long term care for each other. But he doesn't stop there, then he also invests. Right, just like the Samaritan left money so that the costs of that man who had been beaten up could be taken care of and then gave the promise that he would come back later and reimburse any other costs, Jesus has done the same thing with us. He doesn't just forgive us once and says, all right, you're good, figure it out yourself. No, he continually forgives us again and again for all the times that we sin and he will continue to forgive us until he comes back and our sinful nature is done away with. There is no more flesh. There is only the Holy Spirit working through resurrected spiritual bodies. What a beautiful place to be. And that's what the story is about. The story is fundamentally not about your achievement, but Christ's achievement for you. Not your adherence to the law, but Christ's perfect adherence to the law in your place. Not your ability to pull it off, but Christ's ability to pull it off for you. It's all done for you. You don't have to ask for it. You don't have to decide for it. It is undeserved love from God. If you've been in church every Sunday for years, this grace is for you. If you haven't been in church in three or four months, or three or four years, or three or four decades, this grace is for you. If you've got your life pretty well together, this grace is for you. And if your life is just about a disaster, this grace is for you. And it asks no questions. It just comes and picks you up off the side of the road and heals you. 
And I pray that you believe it because you undeserved it. Amen.